Bibles, if you would please, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Tonight we come to the third part of our study on the filling of the Spirit demonstrated. When Jesus left the world, he gave his disciples a very wonderful promise. He promised them that the Holy Spirit would come and abide with them forever. And in the Bible, we never find a time where we're told to pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because if you're a person who's saved, if you know Christ is your Savior, God has already promised that the Holy Spirit would always be there with you, and he'll never leave you. But what we are told to pray for is for the filling of God's Spirit. Now, the filling of the Spirit does not come automatically. We don't get that upon salvation. And so there are some things that we have to do to be sure that we have the Spirit's filling. Now, in this fifth chapter, Paul talks about those things. He tells us that we have to submit entirely to the Holy Spirit's leading. We need to determine what God's will is and then decide that we're going to do exactly what God says to do in the way that God says to do it. We're to follow him without reservation. We are to desire the Holy Spirit. And then we're to let the Holy Spirit come and permeate every action in our lives. Well, we're going to talk some more tonight about demonstration of the Holy Spirit's filling. So if you'd stand with me, please. We're reading from Ephesians chapter 5. Our text verses tonight are verses 18 through 21. Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 18. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for all things unto God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for everyone who's come out tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the members of Berean Baptist Church who love you and love the study of your word. We just ask you, Lord, to open up our hearts to the message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, there will be a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's ever-flowing and overflowing presence in our lives. In the first two messages, we talked about uh, different ways that the Holy Spirit's filling is demonstrated. And uh, tonight, we're going to talk about the third way of that demonstration. I want to take just a minute, if I could, to review a little bit about what we talked about in the first two messages. We first of all talked about the inward experience of filling. And Paul tells us about that in verse number 19. He tells us that a spirit-filled life is one that is characterized by having a song in your heart and a song that expresses itself by the, the whole, or expresses the Holy Spirit's presence by singing. Now, music is really a powerful motivator. And it doesn't make any difference whether you're talking about secular music or sacred music. Both are very powerful motivators. And as we think about the world's music, uh, the music of the world and the sound of the world's music, the words of the world's music, the order of that music expresses sensual feelings and appetites. And it reveals the world's thought processes and the world's desires. Well, Christianity also has its music. And although much of our music, sadly, has been mixed with music of the world, yet we're to have a music that's different from the world's music. We think differently. We have different motivations for what we do. And so when we sing, we want to sing songs that magnify God, that honor and glorify his name. 
And we don't want to fill up the sensual appetites. That's not our purpose. And so music may not satisfy us all of the time because we still have that sinful nature, but we do want to make sure that whatever we do does satisfy God. So the Holy Spirit's filling will be demonstrated by a heart that wants to sing. Now, we also learned about the Holy Spirit's filling. Uh, We learned about the upward exaltation of filling. And verse number 20 talks about thanksgiving, and that's a demonstration that you have been filled with the Spirit. When you're filled, you'll look heavenward. Uh, You'll recognize that everything that you have comes from God. You will not deny that. You'll understand that you don't deserve it. And then you'll also desire that you can give something back to God because of what God has given to you. And so as you have this upward exaltation of of filling, you learn to to, uh, thank God for the things that have come in the past. You learn to thank Him for the things that you have in the present. And then you also thank Him for good things or whatever He may bring in the future. Now, many times in our lives, what we go through at the present time may seem to be uncomfortable, that it's unpleasant, and we may not like it. But the true measure of a person's fortitude in their worship of the Spirit and understanding the filling of the Spirit is how you deal with these present circumstances. When things are going wrong and things are hard, can you still thank God? Can you still praise Him knowing that He's going to work everything out for your good? And that's a real measure of your spiritual maturity. There, there, so those are two ways that the, the filling of the Spirit is demonstrated, the inward experience and the upward exaltation. Now let's move on, and we're going to talk about the third area of demonstration because there's also the outward expression of filling. So we have this inwardly. It goes up upwardly, but it also goes outwardly. So we can say that it's stationary, it's vertical, and it's also horizontal. You know that you have it in your heart. God knows it because your praise goes up to him. And also other people will know it because they're going to see a change in the way that you act towards them. Now I want to go back to the uh, statement that I made in, a, in the message, the first part of this, of this series. I made a statement where I said, whenever you hear a person who, who speaks harshly or rationally, we wonder sometimes or we say, I wonder what got into him. Now, we used to say things like, I wonder what burr he's got under his saddle. You may talk about it like that. But when you become a spirit-filled Christian, people will ask that about you. I wonder what got into him because he doesn't act the way that he used to. There's something different about him. And so the outward expression of the Spirit's filling will mean that people will take notice of what's happened to you. Now, look at verse number 21 again. It says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So your filling of the Spirit will begin to affect other people because there's a change of attitude. And that change of attitude is called here submission. You will submit to others. Now, really, what we have here in verse number 21 is the introduction of a whole new discussion that will concern us for the next several weeks. Because as we talk about submission, this opens up the areas of of marriage, submission of the wife to her husband, uh, submission in the church. That's where we submit to the authority of Christ. The uh, submission in the family, children submitting to their parents, the submission of slaves to their masters. And also, I think, by extension, the submission of employees to their employers. Now, although this does begin a new section, 
Well, we need to understand that all of this really ties back to everything that's been said before it. All of it has to do with the demonstration of the Spirit. And so that's why I include this idea of submission along with these other two messages. So there'll be an attitude of submission, and that's how others will see the Holy Spirit in you. Well, let's talk a a few minutes now about this submission and how that's characterized in a Spirit-filled Christian. First of all, I believe that when the Spirit fills you, that you will have respect for authority. You'll have respect for authority. You'll understand that God has established an order in the world. He's given a chain of command, and obviously the first person in that chain of command is God himself. God is the authority, and God has the power to delegate authority to others. Well, I don't think submission to God is is a disputable area here. Surely we understand that. I mean, I don't think that we need to spend a lot of time here because if you have not yet submitted to God, then you won't understand anything else that I have to say here. And yet, do you understand this, that most religious people have not gotten this, this, this very point? I mean, even people who call themselves good Christians, they have yet to figure out what we're talking about when we speak of total submission to the authority of God. In this church, the battleground for our doctrine here has been over who really does have all authority. Now, I know that there are a lot of Baptist churches... A lot of preachers who like to give lip service to the sovereignty of God and talk about God's authority. But when it really comes down to it, what they like to do, they want to put God in their little box and they only let God come out when they need him to make an appearance. Here's what we need to understand. All things begin and end with God and God is everything in between. And when a person tries to thwart the authority of God in a matter like salvation and tries to tell you that man is the determiner of his own destiny, then he ceases to recognize the true authority. It's only when you understand God's authority that you'll ever begin to understand the delegation of God's authority. Now, so a person who refuses to recognize God will never recognize God's emissary. Now, there are two particular places in Scripture that clearly demonstrate what I've just said. One is this centurion that we talked about a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 7. He's also talked about in Matthew chapter 8. Now, I'd like you to turn to Luke 7, if you would, for just a minute. We're going to read some Scripture here. And this is the story about the centurion whose servant that he loved was dying. He heard about Jesus... And so he inquired of the Jews to to send for Jesus that he might come and heal his servant. And when Jesus came, he made a statement that, that really amazed Jesus. I mean, to the point that Jesus said, I have never seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. Now let's look in Luke chapter 7, verse number 6. This is when Jesus decided to go with the Jews to see this centurion. It says, Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, 
I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. This centurion recognized authority. And the particular thing that really amazed Jesus in this was that he understood that Jesus had voluntarily submitted himself to the authority of God the Father. And so the centurion was willing to submit himself to Jesus' authority because he recognized that Jesus was the representative of the Father. Now, the other example that we have of this is in the book of Matthew. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 21, and this is the parable that Jesus told about the husbandmen. We might call them sharecroppers, but this is the parable about the husbandmen who killed the owner's servants and then killed also the owner's sons. This is in Matthew 21, beginning in verse 33. Jesus says, Hear another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and led it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Let us seize upon his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. In this parable, the husbandmen represent Israel. The owner is God. The servants are the prophets, and the son, of course, would be Jesus. Well, the point that I want to make here about this is the husbandman who represents Israel, they did not recognize the authority of God the Father. They didn't recognize or respect his authority, and so neither did they respect God's own son, Jesus, or any of the prophets that were sent to them. Now, folks, when a person is filled with the Spirit, he recognizes authority... And in turn, he will recognize the delegated authority that God has put in this world. Now, I want to briefly give you three areas of earthly authority that God has ordained in this world. The first one that God ordained is the authority of the family. Now, the family, of course, is the first institution on the earth. The first family was Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Adam was first formed, then Eve And that forever set the order of who has the authority. Eve was the first one who took of the forbidden fruit. But we know from reading the story that Eve is not the one that God held accountable. God held Adam accountable because because Adam was the authority over Eve. Now, it was Adam who tried to shift the blame for what he did. He, He wouldn't take the responsibility. So first of all, he tried to shift that blame to God. Then he tried to shift the blame over to Eve. But God would not allow that because Adam was the delegated authority. Well, a spirit-filled wife recognizes that authority. Now, there's a lot that goes along with that, and we're going to talk about it later. But the spirit-filled wife respects the delegation of God's authority to her husband. And the spirit-filled husband understands this as well. He understands that he has the responsibility and he's not to shirk that responsibility. But also he understands this, that God has set up parameters under which he's able to operate and there are special requirements that God has given the husband. Now the second institution that God has set up 
The second authority is the authority of government. As the world was populated after creation, uh, families were formed into societies, and societies require government. And the Word of God is very clear about this, that government is ordained by God. God is the one who sets up leaders, and God is the one who deposes leaders. Let me read a couple of verses to you from Romans chapter 13. Paul writes there, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. And if you read on there, Paul goes on to explain how God has ordained government for our good in order that laws might be enforced for the benefit of all of us. So we're subject to the authority of government, and that means that we are to subject ourselves to those who lead us, the leaders that have been appointed, and we're to do that whether or not we like those leaders or whether we like their policies or not. Now, we notice from the Scriptures that as bad as the government of Rome was and as as, uh, despicable and decrepit as they were, yet you never find in the Scriptures any place where Jesus advocated or the apostles advocated the overthrow of the Roman government. Now, of course, I understand we live in a free society here in America. We have a democratic country. Our laws tell us that we have the right to protest. But I also believe that the Bible teaches us that we ought to be reserved in our protest. We ought to be Christ-like in our attitude over those that rule, uh, to those that rule over us. And so that means that as badly as you dislike President Bush, some of you, and as badly as I dislike Bill Clinton, we're still supposed to respect them as leaders. We're not to hang them in effigy or disrespect their authority. Now, if Hillary gets elected, I'll have to move to Australia to remain consistent about this. But uh, we're supposed to respect those that God has put into authority over us. Now, the third area of authority is authority in the church. And Paul addresses the issue of submission regarding the church in Hebrews chapter 13. I want you to turn to Hebrews 13 for just a minute. We're going to read about this authority. This is in verse number 7. Hebrews 13 Verse number 7. And here the writer says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Now skip down to verse number 17. It says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as that they must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Now, Paul here is referring to the office of the pastor. And a spirit-filled Christian will submit himself to the authority of the pastor. That means that it's your duty to listen as the Word of God is taught. It's your duty to follow the Word that's being taught. It's your duty to pray for the pastor. You're to support the pastor. And that means monetarily, but not just monetarily, it also means that you support the pastor in decisions and you don't publicly or privately upbraid the pastor. Now, if there is a decision that the pastor makes or a doctrine that the pastor preaches that you don't like, it's your duty to go to the pastor alone and deal with it there and not to deal with it in any other place. So that's part of the respect for authority for the pastor. But let me also explain this, that 
Just as a husband has parameters that have been set for him under which he exercises authority, so does the pastor of the church. Now, I know it is popular among independent Baptist pastors today to set up their little fiefdoms, and uh, they have so much control over people that every move you make and every step that you take, they're going to make sure that they have control of that. And what you end up with is a congregation full of lemmings instead of sheep. Now, it's a poor pastor, I'm telling you, who wants to use his authority to control people's lives. Peter addressed this in 1 Peter chapter 5. He said, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. So a spirit-filled Christian is one who recognizes God's authority in all spheres where God has set up authority. Now, that also extends to other areas that I want to add very quickly. Things like respect for your boss at work, respect for teachers if you go to school. If you're involved in sports, this would mean respect for coaches that you're under. If you belong to an organization, respect for the leadership of those organizations. Because a Christian is not supposed to stick out in a crowd by being a loudmouth person and being a disruptive person. A spirit-filled Christian respects authority. Now, that leads me then to the second characteristic of submission. A spirit-filled Christian is also one who is reserved in self-assertion. Now, I think the best scripture on this was written by Paul in Philippians. He said in Philippians chapter 2, If... There be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others." So filled with the Spirit means that you are one with your brothers and sisters in Christ and that you consider others to be better than you. Now, all society, as we know, thinks differently. This is not our plan for the way things should work because generally, most people are thinking me before you and always me before you. So why is it that some people are loudmouthed? Why do you see assertive people that are always carrying around their little flag that says, don't tread on me? Well, it's because what they think and what they say is more important, they believe, than what you think and what you say. Now, let me give you three rules that will help you to remain reserved in self-assertion. Three rules. Rule number one is that I have opinions, but I don't have to be opinionated. Now, there's nothing wrong with having opinions. And if you have no opinions, then somebody else is doing your thinking for you. Reference above point number three about the lemmings and the independent pastors. Those are people that don't let people, they don't think for themselves. And folks, I can talk about independent Baptists because I is one, so that's okay. So you can have opinions. And that's why uh, uh, when you have these opinions, the problem comes when you're indignant and you become offended because somebody else has a different opinion. The highly opinionated person is the one who thinks, well, my opinion is the one that counts. And if you don't take my opinion and make it your opinion, then I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. And that's the kind of person 
that in the church, they, they resign their position at the first sign that things are not going their way. And they think, well, I think things ought to be done this way. And if they're not done this way, then I'm just out of here. And so they walk out of the church with their nose stuck up in the air. That's not a spirit-filled Christian. That is a self-consumed Christian. And you can't be filled with the Spirit when you are filled with you. Now, we might disagree on things. That's all right. We may disagree. I have my opinion. You have your opinion. But I'm not going to let my opinion be so strong that I'm just going to stomp off when you don't agree with me. Rule number two about self-assertion is that I am an individual, but I don't have to be individualistic. All of us are different. I mean, we, we agree to that. All of us are different. You are a single individual. Now, that's a redundancy, a single individual. But I emphasize that because if there were two individual linos, for instance, then I'd probably shoot myself. We all have to be ourselves. We have to be ourselves, but we're not the only people that are on this planet. You've met people like that, haven't you? I mean, there are some people who think that they are God's gift to the human race. It's all about them, and they're the sun in their own little solar system. I think Peter was a person who started out that way. Peter was that kind of take charge, uh, take charge and go now, speak now, worry about the consequences later type of person. And that got him into trouble. And have you ever noticed that the kind of people who, who, who are individualistic and they're always thinking, I don't care what anybody else thinks, they're the kind of people that always cause strife and contention. They're the kind of people that always run roughshod over others. Well, this is what happened with Peter. He didn't stop to ask for instructions. On that night that Jesus went in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter just charged out there. He wasn't supposed to be there in the first place. And Peter went over there and he cut off a person's ear. Jesus had to clean up that mess because that's not the way he wanted his disciples to ask. Well, Peter must have thought, well, the rules, all of this, this applies to everybody but me. It doesn't apply to me. And wasn't he the one that Jesus said, you can't go with me where I'm going, you cannot come? And yet that's exactly what Peter did. The Bible tells us that when Jesus left, Peter started following. He started following afar off, hiding behind this tree and hiding behind that tree to check things out to see what was going on. And what happened to Peter? He found himself in a place where he wasn't supposed to be, and he ended up denying Jesus three times. So Peter was thinking, it all applies to everybody else, but not to me. Well, finally, Peter got straightened out. The Lord had to humble him. But we've all met people like that, haven't we? They're individualistic. The rules apply to everybody but them. And it can be just as simple as a rule that says you're not supposed to have food and drink on the carpet. And everybody thinks, well, that applies to everybody else but me. And you have a rule that says when you walk through here and go through the office of the school that you're not supposed to pick things up off of my wife's desk. I'll throw this in for her. You're not supposed to pick up stuff off her desk. But that doesn't apply to me. It applies to everybody else but me. Well, that's an individual being individualistic. And we're not supposed to be that way. And you know why? Because body parts, which is what we are in this church, we're all body parts. We don't exist without the whole of the body. The finger doesn't say, I don't like the company of the other fingers, so I think that I'm going to do things my own way. Well, you cut your finger off, what happens? You put it off by itself, what happens? Your finger dies. 
The body works together, and it all works together for the good of the body. Your fingers, your toes, they're all different. They look different. They perform individual functions, but all of them are needed to perform that function, and they're still part of the same body. We have a nose because feet don't smell. Well, some people's feet smell, but I mean, we have a nose because that's the nose's function is to smell. That's what I want to say to you. And we have ears because ears don't see. I mean, and we have eyes because eyes don't hear. We need all of that. Now, that's exactly the gist of what Paul was trying to say in 1 Corinthians 12. He said, for the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not of the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet one body." What the scripture is trying to tell us in another metaphor is that we're not an island. We're not an atoll out somewhere in the middle of the Pacific. No man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. So be an individual, but lose that individualistic attitude. Now here is rule number three. I have rights, but I am not always right. Yes, you do have rights, but you ever notice that a person who's always asserting their rights is the person who's always stepping on somebody else's rights? I think that's why I don't understand affirmative action very well. But you're always stepping on somebody else's rights, Brian Petro. I know he likes affirmative action. Spirit-filled Christians, though, understand the liberties that they have in Christ. And they also understand that they can't always exercise all of their liberties in Christ because sometimes that might be harmful for other people. In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 13, Paul said, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. So I understand. Sometimes I may be right about things and sometimes I'm wrong about things. I don't always dwell on that because it's not likely I'm going to be wrong, but sometimes I'm wrong. And I know it because nobody has a monopoly on truth. I mean, all of us are still learning. You're learning and I'm still learning. So spirit-filled Christians get off of this thing of being self-assertive. I'm not saying that you have to be a wallflower all the time, but I'm saying you don't have to be the life of every party. Don't assert yourself unduly. Well, let's go on now to this third characteristic of submission. And a spirit-filled Christian is resigned to Christ's approval. The outward expression of the filling is evident because you live a Christ, a Christ-approved lifestyle. Now, Paul seems to be the great authority on all these things because he has something to say about this as well. In Philippians chapter 2, verse number 5, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of of the cross. Now, here's the last point, and we'll be through. A spirit-filled life shows outwardly because you say, I will follow his example. I will follow Christ's example. 
You may not have to go to the cross, but you do have to die. You have to die to yourself in order for Christ to live in you. Now again, Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, doesn't that sound a whole lot like what we've just been talking about? How does Christ live in you? He lives in you through the Holy Spirit. And in order for him to live in you, you have to die to yourself. Christ gave up his life, and he can't live in you until you decide that you're going to give up your life. Our text verse says, Submitting yourselves one another to one to another in the fear of God. And so you'll never be a spirit-filled Christian until you learn to respect the authority that God puts over you, that you hold back in your self-assertiveness, and you resign yourself to a life that meets Christ's approval. B.B. McKinney wrote, wrote a very appropriate song on this. The song is titled, Let Others See Jesus in You. And he wrote these words, While passing through this world of sin, and others your life shall view, be clean and pure without within. Let others see Jesus in you. Your life's a book before their eyes. They're reading it through and through. Say, does it point them to the skies? Do others see Jesus in you? Let others see Jesus in you. Let others see Jesus in you. Keep telling the story. Be faithful and true. Let others see Jesus in you. And that is the outward expression of the Spirit's filling. So we have these three ways that demonstrates the Holy Spirit's filling, the inward experience, the upward exaltation, and the outward expression of filling. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that we've been able to look at tonight. I ask you, Lord, that you would help us to be spirit-filled Christians. May we desire it. May we ask for it. May we seek it. And Lord, I just ask you to make us willing to take whatever path that you want us to take. And Lord, I pray that you would help us in the area of submission. It goes against our grain. It's not really what we want to do as humans. But Lord, we just pray that you might work in us, that we might submit ourselves to the proper authority because that's been delegated by you. Speak to our people tonight, Lord. Help us in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.